Good morning. Good to see you, brethren. Let us turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we will read verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. The Word of God reads, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. May God bless the reading of his word. Last week, I posed the challenge of, do we follow a ministry through marketing or through the marks and evidences of that ministry being faithful. What drives church retention? Visitor comes, what causes that visitor to keep coming, keep coming until they say, I'm going to pitch my tent here. Do we devise a technique? Do we devise something attractive to hold people? Or do we aim at being faithful in the ministry? I had a good conversation with a friend of mine, Pastor Otto Sanchez, from the Dominican Republic. They have a rather large church, about 1,500 people, give or take. And uh, in, in our conversation, I, I once visited the church, and another time he asked me to go preach at his church. Three services in a row. Same sermon, same joke, same everything. You have to repeat everything exactly the same. Because people talk to each other. And if you, woe is thee if you tell a joke that to one session and not to the other. Because then they complain. Anyways. But he says, what did you notice about our church? Can you tell me three things that you notice about us? And I thought, and I said, well, you guys are very warm and welcoming unusually warm and welcoming. Your music is outstanding. Even if the heart is cold, eventually the music draws you to worship. 
And I said, and the preaching, and I was talking about his preaching, and your preaching is fantastic. And he said, thank you. That is not coincidence. That is intentional. We plan to be a welcoming and warm church, and we train people to do that. And our musicians, we have a lot of people who play music, but we have asked many of them, please, brother, sister, not not serving another ministry, not in this one, because you're not contributing with your music to our worship. And we don't want you to be offended, but we are intentional in how we worship. And then, of course, he does his best to preach a good sermon. He will not say, I'm a good preacher. I told him that. This is what we aim at having good preaching. What's my point? My point is that we have the tendency, especially in our circles, to say, I don't care about how people feel about us. We're going to read the Bible, preach the Bible, and we are confessional. Take it or leave it. No. That's not right. We, we are a community of believers. We want to be welcoming to people. If anybody comes through our doors, we don't know why they came. We don't know what they are looking for. Yes, we want to be warm and welcoming and keep him after 31 years as you, as you have kept yours truly here. Why? Because we're a family. Yes, you want to project that and we have to be intentional. And the music, oh, but if we tell such and such that, that they don't sing that well, they're going to be offended. Sorry, my brother and my sister, that's not the point. It's not about you. We want to worship. We want to engage people with the music to raise their souls to worship God. And those who serve us in the music ministry have to do it with excellence. And if they don't have the ability, that's fine. I could not serve in the music ministry. I don't have the ability to do it. And then the preaching has to be intentional and well prepared and skilled, of course, to the best of our ability. Meaning both. (laughs) We have to be intentional in our ministry, but not at the expense of being faithful to the ministry. And what have we covered so far in Paul's anecdotal biographical remarks about his tenure with the Thessalonians? Well, we saw the verifiable fruitfulness of his ministry. We saw the boldness he had despite conflict, his honesty, no gimmicks to deceive, and his not seeking personal gain, not greed. Let's continue today with more marks about what is a faithful ministry. You have them on the screen, and we'll try to cover them in these minutes left for this study. What are the evidence and the marks of a faithful ministry? Number five, a faithful servant, a faithful ministry is not authoritarian. Is not authoritarian. Where's that? Verse 6. At the end of verse 6, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. That word is a beautiful imagery. It's, It's the only time that word appears in the New Testament. A mother with a child, a breast feeding feeding mother with a little baby, how much tenderness, or, how, or, or what more tenderness can we picture in any human relationship than seeing a mom with a newborn? Paul says, I aimed at being that with you. 
It was intentional. When I dealt with your souls, I tried to be like that mother breastfeeding. He was imitating his Savior. There are some ministries that I no longer follow. I'm tired of people who think they are the Jeremiah or the Elijah, or I don't know who they think they are, the John the Baptist of this generation. Jesus would not put out the smoking lamp. Jesus would not break the bruised reed. That's how Isaiah described the servant of the Lord. And that's how the gospel writers remembered Isaiah and said, yes, that's how Jesus was. He was that servant in the farm whom the owner told him, you see that tree? It's been three years that I'm coming to get fruit from it. And it doesn't produce any. And of course, it's an imagery of Israel and of Jesus' ministry at the time. But still, you get the picture. And what does the servant say? Yes, let's cut it. Get me the axe. Let's deal with it. No. Let me put fertilizer. Let me dig a hole around it. And let's year. Give me a year with it. And maybe we'll find fruit next year. That's Jesus. Long-suffering and tender and patient. To me, it's funny that some Christians have spent decades as believers. And then, lo and behold, they discover Sproul or Piper or MacArthur or their favorite theologian. And they realize, oh, God is sovereign. So when we sing, come to worship, this is the time to worship. I always sing, I always change the lyrics when I sing it. Or joyfully or, or willingly we come. I, don't, I didn't come willingly. Jesus drew me to him. And when he drew me, I was willing in the day of his power. I didn't want anything to do with God. But he loved me first so that now I would love him. And when we discover that, now we want to condemn every believer who doesn't agree with that. No, that's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus said that the leaders in his kingdom, those who are first, act as the servants, as if they were the last and the least. And he even told the disciples, even as the Son of Man, even as me, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And I came to give my life to rescue many. The language of Philippians 2 is not a theological poem. It is Paul exhorting Christians, be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Have a base mind. Have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. Being God, in the form of God, existing as God, he did not regard equality with God, but humbled himself to the most, to the least to become a servant, to become man, and even to the point of obedience, to death, to death on a cross. And Paul says, I was intentional in doing that. God's servants ought never to be demanding, authoritarian, bossy. They are actually called to be tender and patient. A servant of the Lord, says Paul to Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but patient with all, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. Because repentance is not in our power. 
There's no skill. There's no human ability. There's no persuasion. There's no apologetics. There's no philosophy. There's no way that we can persuade a person to repent. But we are called not to be quarrelsome, but to be patient. And God do his work. You and I just plant the seed. And God and Paul never used his apostolic authority to our knowledge, because he repeats that in other letters, to demand or assert any loyalty or any authority for himself. And that doesn't mean that those in ministry will have to be assertive at certain times. Dealing with sin, dealing with error, you have to be assertive. You have to be firm. You cannot say, oh, well, I'm going to be meek and humble and let sin run rampant. No, that's not the point. When it's time to confront error, you do it boldly. And you do it with clarity. And you have to know your Bible and your theology to be able to confront error. And when it's time to confront sin, you have to do it assertively. But the servant of God is primarily meek patient, and humble. And that is Paul's point. And just a word of advice, because this church changes people so frequently. We bring people in, people leave. Whenever you walk into a ministry, whether it is this one or another one, or the next one, beware of leadership or ministries that either openly or in a veiled way demand loyalty To anyone who is not Christ, be leery. You find those strong leaders, and we all, it seems that something inside us is attracted to strong leaders. Men who know where they're going, and they are firm. Whenever those types of leaders demand loyalty to themselves, run for your lives. God's people are not, God's servants are not. Those who assert authority or demand authority. If a pastor makes you feel intimidated, or a leader, one of those of us who are not pastors but who stand up here to teach and preach, if somehow you feel intimidated by us, there's something wrong probably with us. Come and tell us why, because maybe we're doing something that is not right. There has to be that element of servanthood and meekness and humility and of being like a nursing mother with a child serving God's people. Sixth place, a faithful minister is meek and affectionate. And remember, we're dealing with a Jewish rabbi who many times repeats the same idea or just expands on what he's been talking. Meek. And affectionate. Verse 8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I couldn't help think on people who are kind of meek and affectionate, but they're just pretending. They come across very meek and very affectionate and very loving until you cross them. And when you cross them, the lion puts the fangs out and the big teeth. So be careful. Not talking about being mushy-mushy. Some of us, and I'm not saying this is an excuse, 
some of us are not mushy-mushy. I mean, my sister is staying with us, with her husband, and, and I see my sisters, and I keep telling her, we're, we're kind of the same crazy, right? Yeah, we're the same crazy. We don't like to be touched a lot. We don't like to be hugged a lot. We don't like to kiss a lot. Maybe the way we were raised, who knows, whatever it is. But I'm not talking about mushy-mushy, but I'm talking about being meek and affectionate. Loving leaders do not serve themselves. They feed the flock. Remember that indictment in Ezekiel and Jeremiah to those pastors who fed themselves, who would not care for the broken one, who would not go after the sick one, but they only cared to use the sheep for their own interests? Paul says, not we, not us. We were meek and affectionate, selflessly sharing. The ministry is not about what we can get out of the ministry The ministry is about what we give to God's people in the ministry. The ministry is not for people with personal ambition. Many of us decided or thought or felt that we were called to the ministry in our late teens. 18, 19, those years when we're in college, we're starting our Christian life. I think the Lord's calling me to the ministry. Some people come around and say, yes, the Lord's calling you to the ministry. And then we realize as we age, there's a lot of ambition veiled in that desire. Part of human life, part of human nature, I'm not saying if you have any ambition, that means you're not truly called. Nobody has chemically pure feelings on this deal. But my point is, the ministry is not a place for people with personal ambition. Paul has an imagery in 2 Corinthians 12, 5, that I love. He says, like, a, like fathers or parents work for children. Instead of children working for parents, Paul tells the Corinthians, I labor for you. I work for you, and I will gladly spend everything I have And when I'm done spending what I have, then I will spend myself for you, Corinthians. And then he adds a sad phrase, but true. Even if I am loved less by you, I will still love you more, says Paul. Because the ministry is not a job. It's a calling to serve. He tells the Thessalonians, you have become very dear to us. Ministry is not a career. Many, many years ago in Cornerstone, we, we had this issue of looking for a full-time pastor. People wanted to look for a full-time pastor. And we started getting their resumes. And college, education, resumes... My point is I'd rather have a full-time pastor that loves me as a sheep. I'm sorry, Freddie, this is not in my notes, but I'll say it. Freddie came to Cornerstone in 2008, and he came as a sheep. He came as a brother and started serving us, serving our youth, serving our Sunday school, serving in whatever he could with his wife. And then the Lord called him to the ministry. I believe in that kind of ministry because that's the ministry. The ministry is not a career. It's not I have this education and this profile and I'm willing to come and serve you until the next place that has more people and a better profile calls me. Because the Lord now is moving me. Where is he moving you? To a little 
church in Alabama in the middle of the, of the boondocks? Or is he calling you to a larger, beautiful, larger, better church? It's funny that sometimes the Lord seems to call to a better, higher profile place. Never calls to a worse place. And that's Paul's point. I was ready to give you not only the gospel of God, but, but our very lives. Because you have become very dear to us. Pastors are not CEOs. Pastors are servants. Even the psychological profile of a pastor, he's not the psychological profile of a manager. I've taken that, that test so many times. The famous test, whatever it is. And it always tells me, you can be a teacher, a policeman, or a pastor. And I always wanted to be a VP or a manager or something. My profile is not for that. If you are called to be a pastor, get it straight in your mind. You're not called to be the top executive in the church. You're called to be the servant of all. And that's Paul's point. And for that you need love. Giftedness, intellectual endowments, communication skills. Whatever you have, 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you have no love, it means nothing. If God's people are only a platform to launch your ministry and not those you're willing to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel, by all means, don't come to the ministry. Create something on your own and be famous. Be the next Jeff Bezos. But don't come to the ministry. Because for the ministry you need to be meek and affectionate. Seventhly, a faithful minister is diligent. Verse 9, for you remember brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It appears from the New Testament that Paul during his 20 years ministry had large seasons where he was bivocational. I remember, I remember when I used to be a pastor and I was bivocational, that being bivocational is kind of being a second-class citizen. You go to a pastor's conference, and you're there with all those big shots, and what about you? I'm bivocational. It's okay, you can get yourself here. You have another job. You're not one of us. Yeah, true, true. But Paul, for a long period of his ministry, was bivocational. He was a tent maker. As a Pharisee, he was taught some kind of trade to make a living off. As a Jew, perhaps his father taught him tent making. He was from Cilicia. That was a city that exported cloth and wool. And he was a maker of tents. would be portable tents for those travelers sleeping on the road, or could also be tents just to cover uh, anything that required leather or skins. We, I do not know the details, but that was his trade. He met Aquila and Priscilla. They were the, of the same trade. They became friends in Corinth, and that's what Paul did for living. And in other occasions, he says that that covered his needs and the needs of his traveling team. Formidable work ethics. Because in his day, there was not eight-hour day shift, 40 hours a week. 
And anything beyond that, you have to be paid time and a half. And after certain hours, then you have to be twi- paid twice. And if they don't give you 15 minutes every four hours, they're breaking the work law, whatever code, and you can sue the company. There was none of, none of that stuff in Paul's day. He had to work during the day in his trade to preach at night and on the Sabbath. Why do you think Eutychus fell asleep and fell from a window? They didn't have service on Sundays at 10 a.m. They gathered after the normal day's work. And then they gathered to worship. And in that, that occasion, Paul preached too long and was kind of boring. Somebody fell asleep and went through a window and died. But he had the power to resurrect them. So that's why I try to preach only 40 minutes because I don't have that power. At least I keep you alive. But anyways... His missionary team stipends depended on his working. And Paul did it in his personal business to care for him and to care for others and to be an example. He didn't want to show himself as a lazy guy who made a living out of collecting fees from Christians and from churches. Let me say this, that teaching demands time and dedication. Working on a sermon, I don't care how expert you are, how experienced you are, it's going to take you time and dedication and studying to some more than others. At the same time, I'll say this. I don't think Paul dedicated 20 hours a week for every sermon he preached. And some full-time pastors, all they do is work 40 hours a week to prepare two sermons. Do you think that's the ministry? Please, if you're thinking about the ministry, don't come to it if that's your idea of it. This man worked hard. He was a trained scholar as a Pharisee, but he was also trained 14 years directly by the risen Christ. And then he worked on his own business and labored in the gospel. Again, not to be a financial burden to anyone, and also to be an example. Later on, we'll discuss that. The Thessalonians had a problem with laziness as a culture. And he wanted to make sure he was an example to them of how things are worked out. Next, (laughs) a faithful servant is a person of a robust piety or godliness. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God is also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. And this is just a repetition of the same thing I know. Holy, akios, separate. Only God is essentially holy. Only God is essentially different, separate, distinct from creation. But just as God called Israel, he calls us to be holy as I am holy. It's God's calling. Or we cannot attain the holiness of God. Of course not. We need to be sanctified in Christ and through him. And the holiness with which we will see God is Jesus' holiness. Nonetheless, those who have been sanctified and justified and transformed by grace, they do aim at walking in Jesus' steps. Being holy is just being separate from sin. 
running away from sin. Being holy is defined by John as not loving the world. And what is loving the world? The lust of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, the vanity of life. That is being holy. It's not too complicated. It's not your idea or, or mine of being holy, by the way. And we all make our funny interpretations of what real holiness is. Christians never wear tattoos. That's unholy. According to who? According to your standard? Put all the tattoos you want. Now find out why you want to wear them. That's your problem. That has nothing to do with being holy. Doesn't mean to be a monk or a nun or to follow the standards of your tradition or religion or your dress code. Oh, then why do you come to church with a, with a jacket? Because I'm a 58-year-old dude that was taught that way. And if I would stand here without a jacket, I would feel naked. And that's my worst nightmare when I'm running naked on the street. And I have that nightmare fr frequently. I don't need to live it. That's why I wear a jacket. But it is not because, oh, I'm a holy person. And if you want to be holy, dress like me. I hope you don't. I'm so out of fashion. The other day somebody told me that. Those pants are out of fashion. You need to change them. Okay. I will, one of these days. Righteous. Same. What is righteous? Decaius. According to God's standard. And where is God's standard? The law. And apart from the law and the prophets, Jesus. So when you're not sure what is the standard, look at the law. If it's too hard, then look to Jesus. Go to the cross. Wait on him. Trust him, but then follow in his steps because he is the fulfillment of the law. And blameless. I love that word, blameless. <laughs> and it's more parallelism. It's more the Jewish rabbi repeating himself, giving more adjectives to say the same thing. Blameless is being whole, being complete, having no blemish, no spot. That's the way I walked with you. Technically, not accused of any scandal or not persecuted by the law because of any crime. That's the meaning of blameless. Now, <laughs> some are paranoid about this. And let me confess to you that when I was a pastor, I was paranoid about this. Because some are trying, you have to be blameless. And they portray themselves as the paradigm of blamelessness. I know a pastor who recently resigned from the ministry in one of those churches that blamelessness, because his adult children are unbelievers and didn't want to come to church. I'm not sure if he had to resign on his own or if he was forced to resign, but adult children who are unbelievers, you're not blameless. It's interesting that from that same group of churches, many, many years ago, a man had a 16-year-old boy who was unruly. In order to keep his blamelessness, he kicked his son out of the house. And that's not blamelessness, that's cruel hypocrisy. So make sure that you understand what being blameless is, it is not perfection. May I send a little memo to Cornerstone? To my beloved Cornerstone? Don't drive Freddie and Nana 
crazy with your own ideas of what it is to be blameless? I mean, Freddie knows it. I'll say it, Freddie. I hate that hair. Hate it. (laughs) But that doesn't make him unblameless. That doesn't make him unholy. Do you know why? Because his wife loves it. And he lives it that way to please his woman. I'd rather have a pastor who does that to please his wife than one who has a crew cut and who is a tyrant at home. How's that? Gauge things with righteous judgment and not according to appearances. And Mr. Legalist Pharisee is the one who's telling you because that's my neighborhood. Beloved, we have to be fair in our judgment and understand our Bibles when we have standards of what is and what is not. Eighth, a faithful minister or pastor is personable, not professional. What do I mean by that? Verse 11 and 12. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And I love the imagery shift. He moves from a nursing mother to a father with his children. He moves to a masculine, manly imagery. Nothing wrong with that. Bravery, leadership, strength, manliness, masculinity. Nothing wrong with that. God made testosterone in men. And God made men to be men. And I'm saying this to you boys and to you girls when it's time to find a husband. Enough of this nonsense. We're being bombarded with the feminization of men in our culture and then the masculinization of women. And this is the crazy thing. I am all for stopping abuse. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for saying to a woman whose husband is abusive, leave him. Jesus is not calling you to slavery in such a case. And I'll do it with 1 Corinthians 7 open, responsibly, leave him. You do not need to receive abuse from a guy because he's bigger than you. But at the same time, enough of this feminization of our culture and of this vilifying of what is manliness and bravery and leadership and being stern and being masculine and being strong and protective. That's what we men are called to be and also courteous and kind and caring and loving and providing. Planning to get married? Make sure you have enough to support your wife and your children. Is it wrong when the woman works? No, I'm not saying that. But enough. Enough. Of these calling things that are good evil, and what is evil, good. Now, 
Used to that detour, I don't know why I'm crazy, getting old. I was going to say that Jesus was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he's called the Son of Man. He's identified as a man. That was what was in my notes. <laughs> but anyways, the ministry requires valor and bravery and boldness. It does. Because there are times that you have to grab the bull by the horns. Ever been chased by a dog? If you're ever chased by a dog, let me give you my trick. I did this the other day. I was actually in Virginia. And I'm just driving with Isaac and Laura. And they tell me, you see that house? It has a sign. They have like five dogs. Uh, Furious, not not furious dog, but vicious dogs. Vicious dogs. Don't approach the fence. Whatever. And you see the dog. Fine, I was in a car, no problem. Next day, I decide to walk out with one of Laura's dogs. If any of you remembers Penny, I was with Penny, the least brave of all dogs. <laughs> and then we are just walking, and we happened to go by that fenced farm that had vicious dogs. And as we walk by, on the other side, not to provoke them, and we're just heading down already off that area, we hear a quack. A door opens, and one of the vicious dogs comes out. And I had to appeal to my Dominican roots. So when I see this dog coming to us, I says, I cannot outrun this dog, my wife either, and Penny much less. So I just turned to the dog. And I cannot tell you here because it would mess up the whole church, but in a very stern and loud voice, I says, walk back. And I was ready to fight the dog. I, I, maybe he saw something crazy in me, or God sent an angel and put him behind me, and the dog just turned back and went home. Point being, in the ministry, sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you have to face sin, face evil, face heresy, face error, and fight it. Can't run from it, because you can out, cannot outrun sin. And there are times that you give a solemn warning. Paul says, I encouraged you, I exhorted you as a father to children. And we know that when when dad calls, he's like, oh boy. Mom, I can handle mom. But it's dad who's calling. And you don't like that one. Paul says, well, sometimes I had to rebuke you or warn you. And sometimes encourage you, pointing people to God. And if you point people to God... You point them to Christ and to the gospel. Because there is no way to point people to God without signaling to them the way of the gospel. And you point them to God, not to personal opinions, not to likes or dislikes, not to what you think things should be done. No, you have to be bold to point them in the way of God. And, and yes, sometimes you have to be aware of swapping rebuke for encouragement. When somebody comes depressed to you, when somebody comes sad to you, heartbroken, that's not the time to rebuke their little faith. No, that's the time to come alongside and encourage and chin up and cheer up and help them along the way and come by the side and even lift them if you have to. And sometimes you have to be stern and rebuke and exhort with warning because the issue is serious. And it is unrepentant, unconfessed sin. I had this conversation with another friend of mine. 
and he's having an issue related to COVID and masks. And, and he says, I don't know what to do because the government, he's in another country, the government demands here that we wear masks to public gatherings. But I have this person who doesn't want to. And he's been very vocal about it. And I don't know, I can't, what do I do? He says, well, you take, you open the Bible and you say, brother, we have an issue here. You have the right, you're entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to do with your life what you think you should do. But right now, notice everybody's wearing masks. And everybody's following the government directives. And what you're doing is actually create, creating havoc and division. Let me read to you Ephesians 4. Let me read to you Philippians 2. Let me read to you Matthew 11. You're not walking according to Christ. And I told him, it's not about you. It's not your opinion. It's not your leadership. It's not your authority. It's not who you are as a pastor of the church. Forget about who you are. Just point them to the scriptures. But you have to grab the bull by the horn. You cannot just let him cause division and havoc in the church because he is in disagreement with whatever measures are being taken. And on those things, you can be on whatever side you want to be. That's your business before God. But you don't have the right to be divisive because Scripture calls us to walk in unity and to walk in the bond of peace. So, conclusion. Ministers are not professional speakers. Love this quote from John Piper. He says, We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. And he writes that in his book, Brothers Were Not Professionals. Now I have to tell you the story of a famous speaker who went to a conference in another country, and after his grandiose dissertation, he asked a friend of mine, be ready when the sermon is over, so that you pick me up and bring me to the hotel. I don't want to mingle with the people. Oops. I honestly cut off that person from my favorite list long time ago because of it. Oh, you don't want to mingle with the people. But Jesus did. Jesus mingled with the sick. Jesus mingled with the demon-possessed. All those who had illnesses, Mark says, they fell upon him. Have you ever been in, in a crowd, and it's a summer day, and people are smelly and sticky, and it's uncomfortable? That's the way people walked all the time. And ill people would just jump on him and get near him to be healed. And he didn't push them. The Pharisees didn't like him because he ate and he drank. And people say, yes, uh, he ate and drank vegetables like Daniel. If he would have been like Daniel, the Pharisees would have not been angry at him. <laughs> Please read your Bible. Because sometimes we want to make Jesus this monk. He was not any monk. Sinners drew near him. Matthew threw a party for him with all his public and friends. The Pharisees were scandalized. He's a glutton. He didn't have the vegetables and the whatever keto diet of the time. He said he's a glutton. He eats too much. And he drinks a lot. He didn't sin. We know that. He didn't sing of gluttony. He didn't think of drunkenness. But he was confused with that. Why? Because he was friendly with sinners. Are we? 
Are we friendly to sinners? Do people feel comfortable around us? Or are we just this religious separate farage? Like the Pharisees. That's the ministry. This sermon is not for Freddie. <laughs> this sermon is for us. We are all called to represent a faithful ministry in fruitfulness, boldness, honesty, selfless love, not being authoritarian, being meekly affectionate, being loving, personable, godly, being imitators of Christ. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Let us do that and walk in his steps. Amen. Father, bless your word and help us to be winsome, to be attractive, to be Christ-like for the right reasons, with the right heart, for your glory and for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.